I have a little more time, so no crash landings, let's hope, than in the first meeting. Yikes, that was a squeeze. Um, We are carrying on. Can I just say welcome, by the way, if you're new to Gateway? It's great to have you with us. We'd love to just say hi at the end. Um, Please do come and say hi or just stop at the connect point on the way out. If If this is your first Sunday, we are in a preaching series that we've called God in the Ordinary, and we've really been looking at how how every aspect of our life is spiritual. And by that I mean that it has important aspects to do with God in it. So it's not just I do the church thing and sometimes I pray and read my Bible and maybe give a bit of money here and there and that kind of thing. And those are the spiritual areas of my life. And then I have the practical areas of my life like marriage and family and friendship and finance. And and yes, God has... Um, involvement in this area of my spiritual life, but in the practical things, I just do the best I can do and hope that it goes okay. We've been saying, no, actually, life is spiritual. In fact, all of life is spiritual. Everything we do, we do before God. We do it because we want to live lives that are pleasing to him. And so we've looked at some of those issues, family, friends, finance, um, raising kids, marriage, those kind of things. And what we've, what we've wanted to say is, Life in the spirit, God in our life, involved in our life, massively, massively impacts the way we do everything. It hugely shapes how we think about those things. And so just before I get into what I want to preach this morning, I just want to say, please, if you've been here over the last weeks, don't think that what we're doing is we're painting a picture of what the perfect Christian life looks like. 2.4 kids, the perfect marriage, money in the bank. 10, 10, 80, I, I spend 80, I save 10, and I give 10, and I'm in control of my money, and I've got, and money's sorted, and wow, my kids, they're just amazing, they just, they're just so amazing, they, I just look at them, and they know what they're to do, they're so well behaved, they never step out of line, they wouldn't even dream of it, they just want to honor me as their dad, and not, that's not my kids, by the way, what I'm doing right now is just saying, make sure you don't think like that, hey Jude, um, it's going to be a bad morning for you this morning, I promise you. Um, and marriage is just this rosy bed of, oh, isn't it so wonderful? And we, we just love each other every day more than we did the day before. And, and we, we never argue, do we, Em? We, we never argue. These, this last month has been a month of no arguments whatsoever. And that wasn't this month. Um, but the problem is, and we, if we're not careful, we could have gone through these weeks thinking, oh, this is what the perfect Christian life looks like. You've got the perfect wife and the perfect kids and the perfect bank balance and the perfect... I haven't even told you about my friends. My friends are just the best friends. You should all be so jealous of my friends. They're so perfect. If only you could have friends like mine, then you would be fulfilled in life also. And listen, we haven't been going through these series saying this is what the perfect life looks like. This is what we're shooting for. What we're saying is that when we live life with God and the Spirit has filled us and enables us, there's a shape to life which looks honoring to God. But I recognize that in a room, even like this size of people, there are going to be people who come and say, do you know what? I crash landed my marriage. In fact, I crash landed my second and third marriage or I'm in the middle of crash landing it right now. My kids, I did the best I could to raise them and serve them as, as young kids. But right now they are far from God and I am praying for them. But, 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 I'm, but right now I just, I don't know what to do. I'm just trusting God that God is faithful. My money, I've sought to be generous. But I, it just always seems to be out of control. It never seems to work somehow. And friendships, that's really nice in theory. But I am lonely. 
I don't have friends. What do you mean friendship? I recognize in a room like this, there'll be people who, for whom those things are painful moments. They're challenging moments. And if we're not careful, we can think we're painting the ideal Christian life. Can I say there is no such thing? This is not a room, we are not a church full of people who have perfect lives, who have it together. We are far from it. We are a room full of people who have broken lives. Our lives have been dashed on the rocks of brokenness. We have broken marriages, broken relationships, broken finances and family, and so on and so forth. We're, we're a community of people who have broken lives, but, and, we, and we try and do the best we can. Like Mark said last week, we do the best we can from where we are with what we have, but oftentimes it just feels like life doesn't work. I don't know if that's just me, but I imagine that's us. Life can be hard work. And can be far from rosy. And so we're not saying we're pursuing an ideal, perfect Christian life. 2.4 kids and so on. In fact, we're saying it's impossible to do that in your own strength. And no matter how hard you try, because we live in a broken world, things keep going wrong. But what we are saying is that you could never do that on your own. In fact, God doesn't even expect you to live the perfect life. You do know that, don't you? God doesn't demand of you living the perfect life. You and I cannot do it. We are incapable of living the perfect life. Even when we have the Spirit in us, the Spirit's willing, but my flesh is weak, and I end up doing things that don't honor God. I make a mess of the great things God's given me. He blesses me with amazing things, and then I ruin it. I'm, I'm a master at doing that, by the way. It's called humanity. But God is a God of grace, and you know, He's so incredible. He's so incredible that he doesn't demand live a perfect life. He's so, he's so incredible that he gave his only son, Jesus Christ, that he lived the perfect life you and I couldn't live. He died the death that we should have died because of our sin and rebellion against God. Jesus lived the perfect life so that you and I are set free from having to do that. You know that, don't you? Isn't that incredible? And it means that we're set free from having to try and impress one another. Do you know, it actually sets you free to, rather than doing a Facebook post of your life going, my life's perfect, look at me, hey. It means you can say to people, therefore, but by the grace of God. Yeah, I, I've, my first and second marriage messed up, but, but God's grace is amazing. I thought my marriage was breaking up, but God's grace has come in and he's rescued it. I thought my kids were just never wanted to speak to me again, but God is an incredible God. And I am praying full of faith that one day we'll have a relationship restored. We are not saying we are pursuing the perfect Christian life. That is not your job. Your job is to pursue God with all you are, to treasure him more than anything else. In fact, seek first the kingdom of heaven and everything else God will sort out. As you give your heart and give your life to God, everything else that's important flows behind. The reality is, though, that we often live messy, broken lives because of decisions that we've made in the past. Or decisions that others have made around us. You, you know that, I know that. I'll decide something and I'll live with the consequences of it. Sometimes good, sometimes not so good. And really that's what I want us to focus on just for the next 25 minutes or so, is how to make wise choices. What does it look like to have God in my decision-making process? What, what is a decision-making process for the Christian? What does that look like? Or, to bring it right home, 
Just to make it really simple, should I or shouldn't I? That question that we ask ourselves all day, every day. Should I do this? Should I do that? Should I? Should I? Should I? We live in a world, in an ocean, we're at sea in an ocean of choices and decision making. There are choices all around us. We have more choices before us today in our context than any generation previous to us and the most people that are alive on earth right now. We're more mobile. I can travel anywhere I want to in the world. I can just get on a plane. We have more money at our disposal to make decisions like that. Where am I going to go on holiday? What house do I want to buy? How do I want to dress? What do I, which restaurants am I going to eat at? We have more choices around us. We're not just limited to marriage by the few women or men that live in our village. And as far as we can walk, that would be the circle of people I get to pull from. Because of this great thing called the internet, now the whole world is at my disposal and I can find my marriage partner from anywhere across the globe these days. I don't know what that was. We live in a, we're, in, we're at sea in a world of choices. Just choice after choice after choice. Where do I live? What do I do? What should I study? What's my life about? And yet we also live in an incredible age of indecision, possibly more so than ever before. People, and I'm talking about the younger generation in particular, as opposed to generations before, are increasingly finding it hard to make decisions. We value things like freedom over faithfulness. And so it begins to shape the way we make decisions. Why settle down? Why commit to marriage? Why commit to a job? Why commit to a local church? Just attend. Just, just have a fling. Just take it easy because why tie myself down to decisions where I have to be faithful and live with the consequences for years to come when I can pursue freedom? We devalue faithfulness these days and we see that in the way we make decisions. So increasingly, people are getting older before they finally settle down and get a job. Before they finally think about having a house or getting married. There's all kinds of reasons for that, but I think one of the key reasons is we have decided that freedom is more important than faithfulness as a culture and community at large. We also live our lives with these kind of mantras, 30 things to do before you're 30. Hey, live life to the max. Make sure that before you one day kick the bucket, you've crossed off everything on your bucket list. Life is for living, don't you know? Don't worry about the future. That will take care of itself. Just enjoy yourself right now. And when it comes to decision making, we often have these, these ideas that are prevalent in culture, even in the church, that begin to drive the way we think about what's important and how we make decisions. We also, we find it that decision making comes easy when we feel skilled and in control of circumstances. But when we feel unskilled or out of control, we begin to feel vulnerable and find it increasingly difficult to make decisions. So all of these Factors are at play in decision-making, taking responsibility, so on and so forth. So decision-making is a key part of life. I, for example, am sick of making decisions right now. So the Thornton household, we're about to move in two weeks' time. The builders are almost done. You wouldn't believe it if you looked at our house right now from the outside, but apparently it will be ready in two weeks' time for us to move into. But I am utterly worn out of making decisions. What color do you want the walls? What kind of floor do you want? What kind of floor do you want in the bathroom? The doors. Let's talk about the doors. Which way do you want them to open? 
Whereabouts on the doors do you want the handles to be? What kind of handle do you want? The light switches, how many? Oh, plug sockets, make sure they're in the right place. Oh, they're not in the right place because we didn't listen to you the first time you said, so you're going to have to make a new decision. Do you want them moved? I am sick of making decision after decision after decision on things like that, spending all of my decision-making energy on the color of the flipping walls. (laughs) But it can get that kind of decision-making can be hard work. Even on the big things of life, there's things that we're wrestling as a team right now that, that, quite honestly, direct the future where we go as a church. And I'm processing that. We're praying and talking it through. What's God calling us to? What are we about? How do we give ourselves to those things? Make sure they're priorities. They're big decisions. Our lives are full of decisions. I don't need to tell you that. Now, what I could do is give you, here's 10 steps to making key decisions. You can Google that. There'll be plenty out there, key 10 steps from the Bible to making godly decisions. In fact, steps, practical steps are often useful tools. But I don't want to start there this morning. We won't have time, so I'm not going to even get to those kind of things. But what I do want to do for a moment is just to dispel a couple of myths around decision-making as Christians. I think we can get stuck on decision-making. And then what I want to do is just talk about What decision-making, what's going on underneath our decision-making? So the first myth to dispel is this. It is not your job to find out God's secret hidden will for your life. It's a myth. Your job is not to go, God, I really need you. Yes, we have your, we have your, your will that you just declare things, and they are. So God says in Genesis, let there be light. God's will of decree, things that God speaks As though they are coming to being, they happen. So God speaks creation and it happens. God speaks to you, life, and life comes into you. God's will of decree. Yes, those things happen. And then there's God's will of desire, the things, the way he's spoken that life should work. And yes, we've made a mess of it, but God says, look, this is how I long. I long to love you like a mother hen. I long to gather you together as my children. I long that you know me and have a relationship. He doesn't force those things on us. He invites us. But that's God's will of desire. But then Christians often fall into this trap of saying there's another will of God, but it's a secret. And your job is to use all your energy to find out what God's will is for you. And then when you found it out, then you can really begin living for God. Can I just say to you, that is wrong thinking. Okay, it is wrong thinking to think God has a secret plan for you. And your job primarily is to try and figure it out. Yes, God has a plan for your life. Please don't think I'm not saying that. He, he absolutely has a plan for your life, and it's a great plan. It's a great plan, and it looks like this. Your life with God at the center of it. But the trouble is, if we live kind of thinking this, this myth of God's got this secret plan, and I've got to find out what it is, and therefore I go to every person that's got the slightest prophetic gift and go, oh, can you prophesy? I need to hear from God for me. The problem is we can become very inactive, very ineffective, even as a community. We, could kind of, we can end up in places where we kind of go, well, I would do something. I would serve in that area of life, but I'm just waiting for God to speak to me. So until he speaks to me, I can't really commit. I can't really be faithful in that area of life in the local church, for example, because I'm waiting for God to speak. And then if he says, do that, I'll do it. But we can get so stuck living like that. Let me just put it like this. God calls all who follow him. You've been called by God. Some are called to specific roles within the church. To some are given the gift of 
evangelist, prophet, pastor, apostle, whatever else, whatever else. God gives gifts to some. And he calls some out and says, I want to send you. I want you to go and plant a church. I want you to lead a church. I want to send you out into the nations. He calls specifically some for specific tasks. But for the vast majority of us, this is what God says. He says, I've already told you what to do with your life. Go make disciples. Go and teach people about me. Go and teach them my ways. Go and help people to see the the amazing person of Jesus Christ and how radically he shapes life. I've already told you what to do. Now get busy and do it. You don't need to therefore go, okay, I'm waiting, God. Tell me where. Hey, where do you work? There's a good place to start. Be faithful where you are with what you have. Just get busy making Jesus the center of all you do. So if your job is telephone sales, that you're the best telephone salesperson in the office and that you're a person that displays Jesus in the way you sell on the telephone. Whether you're a doctor, be the best doctor that you can be. Magnifying God, doing everything you can as though you're doing it for God. That is your calling, is be the best you can be where you are to the glory of God. Understand that it's not those who are called to the nations that are missionaries. We're all on mission declaring the wonder of God, magnifying Jesus Christ. Therefore, just get busy. Make a decision in your heart today. I'm going to serve God with all I am. So that's a myth. You don't have to go around like a water divining, kind of trying to find water with those sticks. When they come together, oh, water's over there. Oh, if only God would speak to me. He's already spoken. He really has. And the second myth is that God is not like a magic eight ball for those decisions in life that you don't know what to do about. You see, the Bible does speak on a whole load of decisions and gives us yes or no answers. It really does. Should I lie? No. Should I be generous? Yes. Should I forgive somebody who's really hurt me? Yes. Should I love my neighbor? Yes. Should I cheat? No. The Bible gives us some incredibly clear answers to areas of life. But there are many things that you'll be deciding every day that the Bible doesn't speak specifically into. And the challenge is we find those areas of life so difficult that we can come to God at times and treat him a bit like a magic eight ball. Does everybody know what they are? Those kind of 1980s toys, a little black pool looking ball about this big. And you, the idea is this, you shake it and you go, so I was an eight year old at this point, magic eight ball, will I have a girlfriend this week? Don't count on it kind of answer. It would come back and it would answer your question. It's not a good thing, but when you're eight and it's just a toy in your mate's bedroom and it gives you answers to life that you want to know the answers to. Will I have a wife one day? Maybe. Those kind of things. Everybody know what I'm talking about? No, probably not them. Anyway, come on. (laughs) But the problem is we can approach God and the Bible a bit like a magic eight ball. God, there's this girl that I really like and I am considering her to be my wife. Should I? Come on, God, tell me. I wonder if Leviticus tells me the answer to that. Hey, no, the Bible doesn't tell us the answer to some of those big questions of life. Hey, God, should I be a dentist or I'm thinking about being a pilot? Which one, God? Hey, no, it doesn't work like that. And there's many questions that we can begin to ask that the Bible doesn't give straight answers to. And we can get stuck on those things. Kevin DeYoung, an American author, in a great book, called Just Do Something. It's a small read. It's a brilliant little book. And he said this, God is not a magic eight ball. We shake up and peer into whenever we have a decision to make. He is a good God who gives us brains 
shows us a way of obedience and invites us to take risks for him. The problem is we think he's going to tell us the wonderful plan before it unfolds. We feel like we can know and need to know what God wants every step of the way. But such a preoccupation with finding God's will, as well-intentioned as the desire is, is more folly than freedom. The better and biblical way is this. Seek first the kingdom of God and trust that he will take care of your needs even before we know what they are and where we are going. So the Bible absolutely, by the way, speaks into every area of life. Please don't think I'm saying there are areas of life where it doesn't speak into. So if you want to know what God's will is for your life, read this book. Please don't think I'm not saying that, but don't approach it going, God, I've got this question that I need you to give me the specific answer on. He's given you brains. He's given you a heart. Do you want to marry that person? Are they good for you? Do you enjoy time together? Do you have similar shared passions in life? Is your heart on fire for them? But God is also well aware that our lives are made up of thousands upon thousands of decisions every single day. And you know, God helps us make decisions well. So it's not that God doesn't speak and he's not interested. He absolutely is interested in the decision-making processes of our life. And within this book, in fact, there is a book called Proverbs. I hope some of you have read it. And in this sea of choices that we live in, the world that we live in, Proverbs act like boys in the water directing us. Hey, this is a safe way to travel. You could, if you stay within these markers, then, then life in the whole will go well for you. They are not promises of God, but they're practical wisdom, practical ways to live that help us live lives well. And really that was the idea with, the, with these last weeks of saying, look, Here's some areas of life. There are ways to live that are wise and ways that are unwise. And Proverbs is full of wisdom principles. But they are not promises. And what I mean by that is this. They're not promises in the sense that, for example, Proverbs talks about working hard and being lazy or a sluggard, which is a great word. And it doesn't work like this. It doesn't say, hey, work hard because that's really wise And if you do, you will become incredibly rich with so much money that you really won't know what to do with it. Sorry, excuse me. That you won't know what to do with it. It doesn't say that. It says work hard because that's a good way to live. That's a way that honors God. That's a way that uses your talents well. And don't be lazy because laziness can lead to ruin. But it's not a promise because this is what happens sometimes. You could be somebody that says, I work incredibly hard. I'm an incredibly diligent, loyal, faithful person to my workplace. I've been in the same job for years and years, faithfully serving my manager who I love. But you know, I'm not rich. It's not like I've got loads of cash. Yeah, God's given us enough, all that we need. But I'm not incredibly wealthy. And then there can be other times it happens that the sluggard comes along. The guy or the girl who doesn't bother to get a job because why bother? And all of a sudden, out of the blue, blessing comes in their life. And they haven't worked for it, but for whatever reason, God's blessed them. And so Proverbs aren't a promise. If you work hard, you'll be rich. But they give us a direction of life for skillful living, if you like. The book of Proverbs was written by a guy in the Old Testament called Solomon. About 3,000 years ago, he was born, almost to the year. And... Solomon, the Bible tells us, was the wisest man who ever lived. 
And back in the day of Solomon, wisdom literature was kind of like the thing of the day. It, was, it wasn't just in the Bible that there was wisdom literature. Wis- wisdom literature was prevalent. And people would travel to go and hear wisdom. It was kind of the currency of the day, if you like. And, and people traveled from all over the world to come and hear Solomon and the wisdom that God had given to him. And Solomon, he, he gives these wisdom literature, these proverbs to his son. And so what he's doing in this book of Proverbs is he's saying to, my, to his son, my son, look at how people live. Consider the way of the wise and consider the way of the foolish. And therefore, you can begin to make decisions. You can look at life and you go, how do I live a skillful life? How do I avoid the pitfalls that, that many of us make in life? But don't make the mistake of thinking, hey, that was 3,000 years ago. That wisdom was 3,000 years ago. We've moved on past that. We've gleaned knowledge and understanding, and now we're much cleverer and much wiser. The reality is, yes, we are 3,000 years downstream from Solomon. But don't for a minute think we're more wise when it comes to decision-making. Yes, when it comes to things like technology, we have accumulated knowledge that builds on top of knowledge. And so just look around there. The medicine and the technological advance and the way we build buildings and cars and, and, and we can reach to the stars these days. It is absolutely incredible. It's not that we're more clever than people were before, but it's that knowledge in that way is gained and accumulated. And therefore, we can do things today that people previously couldn't do. But because we've built on top of their knowledge and wisdom around technology, for example. However, when it comes to wisdom of how should I live my life, it is very, very clear that we have not moved on one bit. So from the moment in the Garden of Eden when Adam sinned and sin entered the world and ruined everything that God had created and said, it is good. Do you know, you look at our lives today and you look at the lives of the first people in in the book of Genesis, the first families, and we still make exactly the same mistakes. Cultures still make the same mistakes that cultures previously made. Generations make the mistakes that generations previously made. Unfortunately for you and I, we make the mistakes that our parents made that we promised to ourselves when we were 15, I will never do that. They did that, I'm I'm never going to do it. Do you know what? We are more like our parents than we care to acknowledge. We have not moved on when it comes to wisdom around decision-making. We are still utterly capable of making a mess of our lives. Are we not? We really are. But I want us to say this to each other often in Gateway, that God is in the business of making amazing, beautiful things out of the ruins of our life. So you might be here this morning and going, I've dashed my marriage on the rocks. I've dashed my finances. My kids, I don't even know where they are. Hey, do you know something? God is in the business of making amazing things out of our mistakes. Isn't that incredible? Doesn't that bring hope and joy that there is a future and a hope? It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it's 2.4 rosy kids and a family and nice holidays every year. But it does mean God is interested in the detail of your life. Even when you've got it wrong, he's that faithful. It's good news. For example, let me just give a very quick illustration. I was just reading, because I like this kind of thing, about going to the toilet the other day, a number two, if you want to know specifically. Now, in the Western world, we think that the civilized way to go to the toilet is to sit on a chair like a throne, because, of course, the queen, a long time ago, 
how it couldn't possibly squat that is so unroyal and undignified that she would have a throne created. And of course, if the queen sits on a throne when she goes to the toilet, then lo and behold, we better be like the queen and sit on a throne too. And so in the Western world, we think that the wise way to go to the toilet is to not squat, but to sit. Do you know, we do that even though we know that medical science says it's the worst kind of way to go to the toilet. Some of you can testify to that. You have the problems that come with that. Even though we know that squatting is so much better, actually not just for bowel issues, but for all kinds of medical health issues, squatting is so much better. I can't believe I'm talking about this. (laughs) We still pursue what we think is wise and civilized by sitting on a seat. Isn't that crazy? We're just capable of making bad decisions. I'm going to move on. Let me give you some other modern wisdom of our age. Now, before I start, some of you right now are just going to think I've gone off the wall. You won't have a clue what I'm talking about. This, this I'm about to mention came from around 2011, and it was, uh, it was a big deal back then. If I mention it, though, those younger amongst us will just put a head in hand and say, that is so 2011, I can't even believe you're mentioning it. When I start to talk about it, some of you might think I'm talking about drugs and what's he going on about, or Rolos, or that kind of thing. Listen, if Nigel can talk about Pokemon Go... And pretend that he's on trend, which he isn't. I just want to pull the rug from under wrong thinking there. I am utterly on trend, but I realize that this is very passe, okay? So wisdom of our young people, and even saying it like that makes me very old and outdated, but from a few years ago, the wisdom of our young people looked like this. Hashtag YOLO. Head in hand moment for the young people. And some of the 20s are still saying, I still live by that motto. Um, hashtag YOLO. Hey, I know I've got work tomorrow, but I'm going to go and get drunk tonight anyway, because, hey, hashtag YOLO. Or crazy things like you're on holiday and you're on top of a cliff walking along the coast and the water's crystal clear. I'm just going to jump off it and hope that the water's deep enough because hashtag YOLO. Or I'm going to sleep with whoever I want this weekend because hashtag YOLO. People live their life by this mantra. Quite simply this, you only live once. You only live once, so just risk it. It's worth taking the risk. Make the most of your life because you only live once. I realize right now, some of you are just, what is he talking about? I have no idea. That's fine. Don't worry about it. But to prove that I am more on trend than Nigel, I understand that hashtag YOLO is incredibly old school and embarrassing. So I I just know that right now the on trend thing is... Jude... Oh, in fact, do people want to stand up and join me? You're welcome to. Anybody? Elliot, well done. Come on, let's do it. Ellis, thanks for joining me in that. That's great. Uh, if you don't know what I'm doing right now, don't worry. You'll see a lot at the Olympics. It will get explained for you middle-aged, middle-class people. A lot at the Olympics as people win and celebrate, you, you'll understand the dab. I, I, on the other hand, am so on trend that it just fills my life all the time. <laughs> Good in it, Jude. <laughs> he can demonstrate at the end. I, I'm so off track right now. Um, I don't even know where I am. Listen, hashtag YOLO, the dab. I don't know what that's got to do with decision making. But or if you prefer, if you're a bit middle class and a bit middle aged around here, maybe you know it from Dead Poet Society. Standing on the table, carpe diem, seize the day. 
Come on, life is worth living and risking and making just decisions in the moment. We, in our, in our Western world, we are trained into that way of thinking. Our decision making kind of falls down to if it feels good, then do it. That is not a wise way to live. You don't only live once, so just do it. Don't worry about the repercussions. Your life goes on into eternity, and, and as Gladiator said, what you do in this life echoes into eternity. The decisions you make today have massive repercussions. And that's why I don't just want to say, hey, here's five or ten or seven or three steps to making good decisions. Those are there. Read Proverbs. You can get hold of those ways of thinking. But people tend to think that their decision making, the point in my life where I'm processing, I'm weighing up the pros and cons, where should I live? Should I buy that house or not? What are the pros? What are the cons? What do I want to do when I'm older? Therefore, what should I study? Which university should I go to? What are the pros? What are the cons? Do I want to marry her or not? What are the pros? What are the cons? Which church do I want to commit myself to? What are the pros? What are the cons? We tend to think that those above the surface conscious decision-making points in life are the big things that form and shape who we are. People who study people would generally say that those above surface, those conscious decision-making points, only account for 5% of any decision-making process that happens in your day. We think they're the things that form us. They form just a tiny part of who we are. We are much more formed, the Bible tells us, and people who study people tell us, tell us by the things that we are unaware that we do. The decisions we are unaware that we make. If you like, the reflex of the heart, the impulse of the heart, the response of the heart to circumstance and situations. Yes, our day is filled with maybe five or ten decisions where you have to step back for a moment and say, what do I think on this? Which is the better option? Or even what do I feel about this? Yes or no? Do I like it or not? Hey, that makes up a small part of your day, but much more, the bit that makes up much more of your day is just your heart's response to circumstances. In Proverbs 4, chapter 23, it says this. This is a great piece of wisdom. Above all else, guard your heart. Why? For everything that you do flows from it. Don't, don't guard your thinking faculty. Guard your heart. It's the wellspring of your life. And what you do flows from that. And so every day you are making thousands upon thousands of decisions that just flow from your heart. You're not thinking about them. They're under the surface. They're under the radar. Subconscious, second nature things you've learned, if you like. Just impulse reactions. Our hearts are far more involved in our decision making than we realize. In fact, our, our decision making processes, both the things we we cerebrally think about and the things we just viscerally do, they reveal the kingdom that we ultimately worship. That's how key our decision-making is. I realize I am nearly out of time, so I will wrap up. Our emotions, or our heart, if you like, is massive when it comes to making decisions. Where do those impulses, you walk into a room, you walk in this morning, the way you responded to people, 
The people that you dared to go and say hello to or that thing that stopped you going and responding, that look that you gave somebody who's annoyed you, the, the, the way you spoke to people. You might have consciously chose how you were going to speak to people or you might have just found yourself responding in a certain way because somebody asked a trigger question that just set you on edge. And Where do those things come from? The Bible makes it so clear that those kind of responses come from the heart. They come from the heart. We are who we are completely apart from just the premeditated thoughts we think and process. Put it like this, the heart is a profound set of feelings and commitments and convictions and preferences. Your heart, if you like, is like a desire factory that you are utterly committed to, whether you know it or not. You make decisions on what the good life looks like, on what you're pursuing in life, on what you give yourself to. Not based on a list of pros and cons, sure they're at play, but based on what worship looks like in your heart. The things that you treasure most of all shape most of all the way in which we make decisions. The Apostle Paul, he was incredibly clear on this in his letter to the Romans. He said this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. You do know that, don't you, that Christians are non-conformists when it comes to the things of the world. Lots of the world think they're non-conformists. And so, hey, the hipster trend that's kind of been and gone. Hey, I'm I'm growing a beard and getting tattoo sleeves because I don't conform except really I'm conforming to what everybody else is conforming to. The world at large conforms to conformity. But the way of Christ is utterly non-conformist to the things of this world. And Paul says that, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing Will. And when he talks about testing and approving, the word he's using there isn't just you can do a pros and cons list. You can just weigh it up and make an intellectual decision on what is better or not. The word always has this sense of a value, a commitment to a valuing. You can say, is this a good thing? Is this, does, is this in agreement with my heart? Why is that important? Well, in Ephesians, he says this, we're to be made new in the attitudes of our minds. So our minds aren't even just an issue of yes or no, both and, either or, pro, con. That isn't what's taking place when we're making decisions. Our minds have an attitude, a spirit, if you like, a desire. And when we make decisions, we are always in a process of revealing what the worship of our heart is. You might not know that. You might not even be aware that's what's going on under the surface. But remember, out of the heart, your life flows. And where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Why is this important? In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul said this. He's talking about the Gentiles, people, and by that he means people who don't have Christ in their life, who don't live with Jesus as Lord. And he says, don't live like the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. The decision making that's in them, they're darkened in that understanding. They're cut off from the life of God. But he doesn't finish there. 
Why is there ignorance? Why do people not make decisions to live life in accordance with the will of God? And he finishes by saying this, due to the hardening of their hearts. People primarily make a mess of life, choose not to live life with God at the center. Not because we sometimes make bad decisions that we've processed, but because we have a hard heart towards the things of God. Do you know, I I think that's so important we understand that because the reality is that when it comes to big issues in life, big parts of our life, marriage, work, money, finance, rest, family, friendship, do you know, none of us have to pretend we've got it together. None of us have to pretend and none of us have to try really hard at making those things work just by making good decisions. That's not how the Christian lives its life. It's not just one, one good decision after another. Yes, good decisions are always good. But the Christian life is one of the reflex of the heart. And so as I learn to love God, seek first the things, seek first the kingdom of God. God, I'm going to seek you with all I am, with all my heart and everything. I'm going to give my life to you. As I begin to live like that and learn to love God and treasure him above everything else. Do you know that my decisions, the other areas of my life begin to flow from that? God, you've got my heart. My heart belongs to you. You've given me a new heart that now beats for you. It means that all kinds of areas of my life flow out from that God having my heart. Hey, having a great marriage isn't just a series of good decisions. It's about giving your heart to God first and foremost. It really is. And do you know the great thing is, is if your marriage is in an utter mess right now, do you know what the answer is to that? Don't just set some good decisions in place. Yes, make good decisions like commit time to one another. Make sure you talk. Make sure communication is open. Make sure there's friendship within your marriage. All of those are good things. Do you know the best thing you can serve your husband and wife with right now? is love God with all of your heart. Love him with your heart. That will utterly begin to change the way you think and process and make decisions even about your spouse. Hey, it begins to look like this. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. How? By laying down your life. Oh, I love Jesus. I want to be like him to my wife. Wives, submit yourselves out of reverence for Christ. How? In the same way. Jesus laid down his life. He submitted his life for us. I'm going to submit my, my life and demonstrate Christ to my husband. As we learn to love God from our inmost being, it produces within us decisions that are in accordance with God's will. Which is why, and I don't know if I can find the verse, and it's not on the top of my head right now. Here we go. It's why the psalmist said, delight yourself in the Lord. And he'll give you the desires of your heart. That's a promise. That's not just wisdom literature. That's a promise. Hey, delight yourself in the Lord. And he'll give you the desires of your heart. Your kids are far from God. Don't bash them around the head about the Bible and Jesus. Sure, talk to them about the things of God. But delight yourself in the Lord. Love God all the more. Say, God, I know I love my kids, but I know you love them even more. And I'm going to delight that you love my kids more than I do. You're such a good God. Hey, my my finance is in a mess. I'm not going to worry about that. I'm going to be responsible and steward my money well. I'm going to honor God with that that he's given to me to take care of. But I'm going to delight myself in him. I'm not going to think, oh, if only I had all the time. I'm going to trust that as I love God, he'll give me everything that I need. 
I'll learn to be content with what I have. So let's stand. I'm going to pray quickly and then we'll finish. Can I just encourage you as you go to know that every decision we're making reveals the worship of our hearts. And that's not to get heavy. That's to say that it is so important the way that we live. It isn't just a matter of do things now and don't worry about the consequences down the road. No, what we do in this life really does echo into eternity. What we do in this life really does have bearing on our neighbor, on our family, on our wife, on our children, on our boss, on the business. And therefore, guys, I want to call you and encourage you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength. Don't lean on your own understanding of how to fix things, but trust in him, and he will lead you. He'll give you wisdom. That's why James, when he wrote his letter, he said, if any of you lack wisdom, ask. Ask for wisdom. Ask God. God, would you give me wisdom on this circumstance? I really don't know what to do right now. Ask him, and he'll give you wisdom. I'm not saying don't consult God. Go to God. Run to him. Pursue him. Absolutely, and all the more. But not just, God, is it this or is it that? God, I love you. Help me to love you. It's a promise that as you delight yourself in him... It's not that God changes his mind and goes, oh, okay, then you can have a million pounds. Do you know what it is? Your desires begin to change. The longings of your heart begin to change. And you say, God, I want what you've got for me. God, your will, not my will in life. And so, Father, I just pray for each one of us here right now. Thank you that you're the God of not just the first chance or the second chance. You're the God of the 10,000th chance. So that when we mess up our lives, you're still faithful. You still love us. You still say, come on, go again, go again, go again. Be filled with my spirit. Allow me into every area of your life. God, thank you that we are to live life with you at the center. And today, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, I want to encourage you with all that I can to say, would you think about making the greatest decision of your life to become a follower of Christ Jesus? The Bible says this, Jesus, who being in very nature God, He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, to be held on to. But instead, he gave himself up, even to death upon a cross, so that you could become a friend of God. So that you could have the wisdom of God at your disposal. So that you could be part of this body of Christ where when life is tough and you don't know what to do, you could go to a brother and sister, somebody who's there in Christ alongside and say, would you help me? Would you stand with me? Would you help me to think through this circumstance I'm finding and facing in right now? Can I encourage you, put God at the center in decision making and understand that's what's at stake. I know even in my short time of being involved in leading churches, I know so many people who who have made decisions aside from God because of their heart's desires, believing that God's holding out on them in all kinds of areas of life. And that one decision can begin to lead them away from Christ Jesus. Decisions are powerful things. But also for you who are here this morning and you're a follower of Christ Jesus, can I encourage you to make a decision like this, to be faithful in all you do, to do the best you can do with what you have from where you are. Don't lean on your own understanding, but in everything by prayer and supplication, trusting God. And can I encourage you to begin to make decisions like this in the days ahead? Be risk takers for God. Make decisions that look risky, where, you, where your life looks like you're loading up everything on God. 
You're placing all your bets on him. You're hedging your bets. You're saying, you're not being careless. You're not being careless. You're being completely trustworthy with all he's given you. And you're saying, my decision for life is, I trust God. I trust that he's got my best at heart. I, I trust that even, even if there's things I long for and desire, but God isn't giving them to me, I'm going to trust that he knows better than I. And I just want to implore you that he is so worth risking everything for. Therefore, take risks for him in life. And he will prove himself faithful every time. So I just bless you in the name of Jesus. Be blessed. Be encouraged. Be full of the Spirit. Don't get, don't get too serious on the small things of life. Enjoy God, Christian. Enjoy him. He's good to you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everybody.